Derek Chauvin will be changing his plea in his federal case. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. I'm Kelsey Carlson. And I'm Randy Meyer. The scheduling of the hearing signals that Chauvin intends to plead guilty to charges of violating George Floyd's constitutional rights. And our Hannah Flood joins us from the St. Paul Federal Courthouse with more on what this potentially means for the federal case. Hannah? Chauvin is expected back in this federal courthouse in St. Paul on Wednesday to change that plea. Now, in federal court, you only have two options, guilty or not guilty. He's already pleaded not guilty, so this news of a change of plea suggests that he may be pleading guilty. Okay, so what does this mean for this constitutional rights violation case? Well, it could mean that Chauvin and his legal team have come up with some sort of agreement on time that Derek Chauvin could serve related to this charge. This is a serious charge. It's holds a sentence up to life in prison, even death, depending on the case. So it could be some sort of, of agreement on time. It could also be an agreement on accommodations. The attorney I talked to today said he thinks that makes the most sense. This could have been a deal where federal prosecutors and Chauvin's team worked out some sort of agreement on where Chauvin will serve his time. Federal prisons are known for having some better accommodations, maybe even better accommodations for Chauvin's case in particular, being an ex-police officer. So that could be part of this deal. It could also be some sort of tactic in this case that Chauvin is facing with the other officers. Cal, Lane, King, and Chauvin were all supposed to face these charges together as the four of them as one unit. Now, with Chauvin out of the mix, the attorney I spoke to said it really might not have a very big difference for those three other officers and how their case will go. But there is one important change. At, with Derek Chauvin now not being a defendant in this case, he could potentially be called up as a witness. That may be part of the deal is that he'll testify. Um, one of the things is that you're, that when they come up with some kind of plea agreement, they usually include in that that you'll agree to testify or at least provide some sort of statement and say the following thing as part of the agreement. Now, again, these charges that the officers are facing in federal court have to do with a violation of George Floyd's civil rights during that incident back in May. Mike Bryant told me when Chauvin is here in court on Wednesday, two things could happen. He could simply change that plea, and then they schedule a time for sentencing. Or, depending on how much of a deal is worked out between Chauvin's team and federal prosecutors, everything could happen on Wednesday, the sentencing as well. So a lot to watch here. It is important to note, though, that uh, Derek Chauvin would serve his state time, those 22 and a half years, in federal prison if he does end up serving time. Uh, Mike Bryant told me there's not a chance that he would end up serving less than 22 and a half years. In fact, it would be more likely that he would have some extra federal time tacked onto it. But I just want to make an important note that he would not go and serve federal time and then come back to the state to serve his time. So definitely a lot to watch here. Again, that uh, hearing is scheduled for Wednesday. For now, live in St. Paul, Hannah Flood, Fox 9. All right, thank you, Hannah. By switching to federal charges that he violated George Floyd's civil rights. Rob Olson has more on what this guilty plea means for Chauvin and the three officers still awaiting trial. I don't expect an apology, and I don't, I don't honestly care to have one. He knew what he was doing. George Floyd's nephew and three brothers sat in St. Paul's federal court as Derek Chauvin, wearing his orange prison jumpsuit, admitted guilt that he deprived George Floyd of his civil rights. Hearing him say that the plea to being guilty, you know, it, it made, me, made me feel like finally he took accountability. But to the Floyd family, the emotions of hearing a guilty plea from Chauvin 
or next because he could have did this last year or started this on that day. So today is still the same pain I've been feeling. The 30-minute hearing went over point by point the plea deal that Chauvin agreed to and signed, admitting he willfully deprived Floyd of his constitutional rights when he held him down with his knee. Also admitting guilt for doing the same thing to a juvenile in 2017. That young man was also in court. Had he been held accountable for what he did in 2017 to that minor, George Floyd would still be here. Today he had a chance to blow kisses and give air hugs to his family. We can't do that to our loved one who's not here. Had Chauvin taken this to a federal trial, he could have faced life in prison. But taking this deal, the prosecutor's asking for 25 years to be served concurrently with Chauvin's 22-and-a-half-year murder sentence. We came here just like we did before. Uh, we just wanted accountability because we can never have justice because we can never get George back. Now, by Chauvin taking this plea deal, it separates him from the other three former officers who are also charged with violating Floyd's civil rights. It's what their defense attorneys have been wanting all along. It could certainly help their cases. Now, as for Chauvin's plea deal, the judge ordered a pre-sentence investigation that's pretty standard. He'll issue a sentencing ruling at a date to be determined. In St. Paul, Rob Olson, Fox 9. Bridge in the Derek Chauvin civil rights federal case. Frank Bassolera joins us now with the latest. All right, uh, thanks, you guys. Uh, minutes ago, Derek Chauvin changed his plea to guilty uh, in the violation of the civil rights of George Floyd. Esme Murphy was in the federal courthouse in St. Paul when that happened. Uh, Esme, tell us about it, please. Well, I can tell you that the prosecution is asking for 300 months, which is 25 years in this case. Uh, Derek Chauvin did, in fact, plead guilty, so the prosecution wants him to serve 25 years at the same time that he is serving his state sentence, which is 22 and a half years. We will not get the sentencing today. That's coming at a later date. The Floyd family, members of the Floyd family and their attorney, Ben Crump, were in the courtroom. Uh, what's not clear is if the Floyd family and prosecutors will be satisfied with the format of this particular hearing. Obviously, prosecutors are satisfied because they ran it. It was just a question and answer. You didn't actually have Derek Chauvin explaining what he did and, and why he did it and the fact that he knew that this was depriving George Floyd of his civil rights. What you had is the prosecution asking, did you know when you had your knees on, Derek, on, on George Floyd that you were depriving him of his civil rights? And his answer was yes. There were a number of questions like that. Uh, Chauvin said really very little other than yes, sir, um, I think yes, sir, every single time. And he answered a series of uh, questions from the judge about whether or not he would waive his right to a trial, which he said he can, and he will. And then he also answered yes to all those questions about what he did. He did not offer the narrative himself. That narrative apparently is contained in a seven-page document that is being filed with the court at any moment. So that was not one of the stipulations. You know, yesterday we all thought that, that this would be such an important day, not just because he's changing to a guilty plea, but because he's going to say in court, here's why I did it, here's what I was thinking, and the prosecution would have a chance to ask him some questions. So uh, do we know if that will happen at sentencing, or are they just going to enter the seven-page document uh, that he has uh, agreed to and signed? That's a very good question. I think they're just going to enter the seven-page document. Normally, it's right at this point that the defendant gives much more of 
a description of what happened and all the details explaining how exactly he committed this crime and how he knew he was committing a crime and how he knows he committed a crime. That didn't happen. The questions were asked by the prosecutor. Again, did you know you were depriving uh, George Floyd of his civil rights? Yes, sir. Uh, those kinds of questions were asked, but it was a very quick proceeding. Uh, the judge moving very quickly through the questions about uh, Derek Chauvin waiving his right to a trial, waiving his right to an appeal, uh, and then going into the possible sentence, which the, the sentencing guidelines are 24 to 30 months. That comes out to, uh, on the high end, 25 years, and that is what the prosecution is going to be asking for. So that would leave uh, George, that would leave Derek Chauvin coming out of prison sometime in his mid-60s. He's in his mid-40s right now. Uh, as may stay there, I want to bring in uh, Joe Tamburino, uh, our WCCO legal analyst. So, uh, uh, Joe, I, I, uh, I don't know if it's a disappointment to the Floyd family or to other folks who wanted to hear some of this, but it sounds like legally, does he have to say in court, here's why I did it, or can he just submit this uh, written form? and uh, that will serve as, as his testimony. He can do the written form if all the parties and the judge agree. So obviously there was some agreement that we don't know of that he in fact could submit this by writing, this seven page document. That doesn't happen too often. Most of the time a defendant in federal court or even state court goes in and says, here's what I did. But obviously, in this case, they use this document. So it'll be very interesting to see what is in that document. And 25 years, uh, that's certainly within the range of the sentencing guidelines. Does that sentence make sense to you? Absolutely. And also, as you heard, it's going to be a concurrent sentence. So it will run along the same time as the state sentence. So basically, he's getting the same time. Uh, Esme, uh, there was another civil rights charge, uh, a federal charge against Derek Chauvin. Uh, did, did, was that included in this today? Oh, Esme, Esme went to go gather a little bit more information. Joe, uh, talk about that. What, what was that other uh, federal charge against Derek Chauvin? Well, there were two charges, obviously the one involving Mr. Floyd from May of 2020, and then one involving a juvenile, obviously they haven't been identified, from September of 2017. Now, the juvenile received much less harm than obviously Mr. Floyd, so the guidelines would be much less than that. Whatever that plea was, it will be consumed by the greater sentence in the Floyd situation. Okay, good to know, Joe. Uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. Just to recap, Derek Chauvin uh, pleaded guilty in federal court uh, just about 15 minutes ago to the violation of George Floyd's uh, civil rights. We'll, of course, keep following this. If there is some kind of press conference or news conference from the government, we'll make sure that we carry that live as well. And as we talk back to Jason and Heather, I just want to remind everyone that we're going to switch back to our live coverage of the Tim Potter trial on CBSN Minnesota. So a busy day, you two, and I know you're busy as well, so thanks for the opportunity to let us uh, cut in and bring everyone this news. Kennedy assassination more than 58 years after that tragic day in Dallas. The government unsealed a trove of confidential documents, and they provide new revelations, but they also fall short of resolving all speculation about the case. Here's CBS's Jesse Gage. Among the documents released today is this CIA case saying that Lee Harvey Oswald was in Mexico City two months before the assassination seeking a visa for Cuba on his way to the Soviet Union. The note, dated September of 1963, also stated Oswald speaks in broken Spanish. 
On the same day, Oswald visited the Cuban consulate in Mexico City three times, requesting an in-transit visa to Cuba, with Russia as the final destination. Within hours of President Kennedy's killing on November 22nd, police arrested Oswald for the shooting. Oswald himself was killed, shot in the stomach, while being walked through police headquarters. For 58 years, investigators and historians have been asking whether Oswald acted alone. Today, the National Archives released some 1,500 documents, but another 10,000 remain a secret, fueling speculation that the government is stonewalling. Philip Sheenan has studied the Kennedy assassination. Do you think the government is hiding something? I think they're hiding a lot of evidence to suggest incompetence, that the CIA and the FBI knew a lot about Lee Harvey Oswald in the months before the assassination and failed to act on that information. Congress ordered for relief. President Trump slowed it down amid concerns from the intelligence community. President Biden has put off releasing more documents until next year. Nora. Just the game. Thank you. This year alone, and this is the fifth time since taking office that he's been called on to comfort families in a disaster zone. President Biden made his way through Mayfield, Kentucky, five days after a devastating tornado outbreak left at least 71 people dead and more than 100 missing across the state. As the president walked among the ruins, he stopped and shook hands with Angie Wilson, who was sifting through her mother's damaged office building looking for the only family photo of her grandfather. He wanted to know how we felt about the entire situation. The president then traveled here to Dawson Springs, where he praised the relief efforts, promising more federal resources and money. The government's going to cover 100% of the cost, 100% of the cost for the first 30 days for all the emergency work, clearing everything, for every single cost. Pat and Philip Bruce lost their sister-in-law and their home. They say they hope the president keeps his word to rebuild their town. This town is our life, yep. too. <laughs> Help the ones that need it. Help the ones that really need it. More than a thousand homes were either damaged or destroyed across Kentucky, leaving thousands homeless. We were laying right here. Including Betty and Andy Hernandez, who lost everything. I thought we were going to die because the house was vibrating, the noise. I've never heard anything like that in my life. They had lived in this home for seven years. Now at 78, she says they'll have to start over with their daughter in Arkansas. We love it here. We we love that little house. And... uh, Anyway, it's totaled. It's totaled. It's totaled. Yeah, it's totaled. The house can't be saved. No, no. FEMA has deployed disaster response teams to help displaced victims find temporary housing. Eight FEMA shelters remain open across the state. Make no mistake about it. This is a very hard time for a lot of people. And we know that emotional and spiritual care is going to be just as important as the different financial and non-financial resources coming to communities. FEMA workers have been going door to door, helping people sign up for aid, but in places like this, as you can see, there's not a whole lot of doors or homes still standing. So they set up a mobile registration unit for those people who don't have cell phones or access to internet. Lilia Luciano, thank you for your excellent reporting these past several days. for another potential wave from the Omicron variant. And heightened tensions. China's increased focus on Taiwan sparked a debate in the U.S. about how and if the United States can protect the island. 
China had built up its military significantly without real capabilities to, to overwhelm Taiwan and Burke alone. And there's real doubts in China's mind about America's willingness to come to Taiwan's aid. All that and more on tonight's PBS NewsHour. Funding for the PBS NewsHour has been provided by... services firm Raymond James supporting social entrepreneurs and their solutions to the world's most pressing problems schoolfoundation.org the Lenelson Foundation committed to improving lives through invention in the US and developing countries on the web at lenelson.org supported by the John D and Catherine E MacArthur Foundation Committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at MacBound.org. And with the ongoing support of these institutions. This program was made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. Reserve officials announced that they are prepared to fight inflation with a series of interest rate hikes next year, mm. suggesting it will begin earlier than they projected just months ago. The Fed's benchmark interest rate, which affects borrowing, lending, and economic growth, has been near zero since the start of the pandemic in an effort to boost the recovery. But today, Fed Chair Jay Powell said there could be as many as three rate hikes next year, starting in the spring in an effort to cool persistent rising prices. High inflation imposes significant hardship, especially on those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials, like food, housing, and transportation. We are committed to our price stability goal. We will use our tools both to support the economy and a strong labor market, and to prevent higher inflation from becoming entrenched. The Fed also announced that it will scale back even further its efforts to stimulate the economy, major bond purchases. For more on these moves and their potential impact, we turn to Julia Coronado. She's an economist at the University of Texas at Austin, the founder of the firm Macro Policy Perspectives, and she is a former economist for the Fed. Julia Coronado, welcome back to the NewsHour. This is a pretty dramatic announcement. Why is the Fed doing this? Well, the message from Chair Powell today was it's not just about inflation that has been running pretty high in recent months, but the labor market is really strong. The economy is basically running pretty hot. We've seen the unemployment rate drop substantially. We've seen really significant wage gains. 
interest-sensitive sectors like housing are running really strong. So the economy doesn't need as much support from monetary policy as it once did. Despite all the turbulence uh, from ongoing waves of COVID, the economy is doing really well, and the Fed has concluded that it needs to start pulling back, start stepping away. It's not trying to kill the recovery. It's just trying to cool things off uh, and, again, keep that inflation in check, as, as the clip we just played indicated. So what effect is uh, the increase in interest rates expected to have on the economy? Well, over time, as the Fed raises interest rates, consumers should see somewhat higher interest rates for mortgage loans, for car loans, uh, and businesses should be, see maybe some tighter terms to obtain financing. We've seen some really easy financial conditions in the last year. Uh, and so we should expect to see a bit tighter conditions and a little bit higher prices to obtain credit in particular. So it's those credit-sensitive sectors that the Fed would like to see cool down just a little bit. And, and the other thing the Fed announced is they are shrinking these monthly bond purchases. They're going to be doing this much faster than they had said. How is that going to affect the economy? Same channels. The bond purchases work by lowering, putting downward pressure on longer-term interest rates after they've lowered short-term interest rates to zero. So as they back away from these purchases, we should see some of those longer-term interest rates move higher. And also, there are spillovers to other areas of the financial markets. The stock market's been really running really strong. We've seen a lot of, you might call it froth in areas like cryptocurrencies, and that kind of sort of... Uh, Enthusiasm may seem, see some cooling as the, as the Fed stops injecting liquidity into financial markets. Are most analysts at, at this stage uh, saying that these are the right moves at the right time that, and the right pace? Yeah, well, there's a, a lot of mixed views. And, and let's be clear, the uncertainty around even just next year continues to be really, really high given the pandemic given different uh, calibrate potential outcomes for fiscal policy. Uh, so there's differing views. The market took the Fed's announcement actually extraordinarily well, surprisingly well, given uh, that they were unambiguously declaring the easing of policy is, is going to be in the rearview mirror soon. Uh, so there isn't really any indication from financial markets that the Fed is either tightening too soon or even really that it's hiking too late. So right now they're giving the Fed a lot of credibility uh, and there's no real indications of, of uh, turmoil or concern uh, that they're about to kill the recovery. To what extent did you, you listen to the Fed chair today, uh, to what extent did you hear him acknowledge that the Fed had been misreading the economy over the last year? Chair Powell was actually very forthcoming, uh, and he's been pretty clear all along that this is an unprecedented economic environment. Um, we've never been in a global pandemic. Uh, when it looked like the global economy was sliding into a depression, uh, the Fed and fiscal policymakers threw everything they had at it. And the other side of that may be that we've got a recovery that's a little hotter than they anticipated, and so they're recalibrating policy accordingly. Um, but he's been very clear that they don't have any magic uh, wand. They don't have a crystal ball. They're reading things as best as they can. Um, part of the idea that inflation was going to be transitory was that so much of it has come from supply chain disruptions 
semiconductor shortages that have pushed car prices higher rather than sort of wages and a broad base of prices. That dynamic is shifting a little bit, and that's one of the reasons that they've shifted strategy a little bit. So they're going to continue to be very flexible uh, as we move forward, given the uncertainty. Things can, the economy can evolve in, in, evolve in unanticipated ways, and they will be there to recalibrate policy accordingly with the ultimate objective of a long, stable expansion like we had last. And we heard him say, use that word stable, stability. If finally, how soon should consumers who are listening to this and watching expect to feel that things are changing? Well, it's going to be a gradual process, so they've sped it up, but they're still indicating three rate hikes for next year. That means it could come, they're going to end their bond purchases in March. So we could see rate hikes in June, maybe June, September, and December would be a reasonable baseline expectation. So you could start to see rates creeping higher over the next year. So again, this is not a, you know, ripping off the Band-Aid. This is a gradual, more methodical removal of accommodation that consumers will feel over time. Julia Coronado, thank you very much. My pleasure. in for Stephanie Stein will return to the rest of the program after these headlines. Now to move on from economic recovery to tornado recovery. It has been five days since twisters shattered towns and killed 88 people across Kentucky and neighboring states. Another person died today of a heart attack while cleaning up storm debris. That came as the region got a presidential visit. Stephanie Stein reports. The scope of destruction was on full display as President Biden traveled to western Kentucky to see for himself. Five tornadoes blasted the region last Friday, including one that cut a roughly 200-mile-long path. The president began his visit meeting with local leaders at Fort Campbell and commenting on how the tragedy was uniting communities. There's no uh, red tornadoes or blue tornadoes. No red states or blue states. This just doesn't happen. bring people together or, you know, knock them apart, moving them together. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear said more than 600 members of the National Guard are assisting in the 18 counties that were hit. Something that feels pretty therapeutic. We're actually hauling some of this debris out of town. Hauling a little bit of that chaos and devastation and death out of town. From Fort Campbell, Biden visited the town of Mayfield, which was almost all flattened. Melinda Bowen is one of dozens of now homeless tornado victims staying at their community shelter. In three minutes, you walk outside, your family doesn't even look like it's happening. It's nothing but rubble, you know? And some of those buildings, they, they carry your, your spirit. They, they carry your memories. And they're on the ground, you know? There's nothing left of them. It's heartbreaking to see that. Ray McReynolds' apartment complex for seniors in downtown Mayfield is also gone. Everybody lost everything. The worst thing we need right now is uh, we, need, we need money. But we don't have no place to live, and we don't have the money to rent another place. Seventy miles northeast of Mayfield, a similar story in Dawson Springs. Some 75% of the town was destroyed. 
and it may be a month before residents and businesses get their electricity back. To make matters worse, a third of the 2,500 residents fall below the poverty line, and many don't have insurance. You know, with the shock of losing a home or a business, the grief of losing someone, it's happening right before the holidays, I said, and we're going to make sure that you have all the help you need. For every tale of grief emerges a story of giving. Reina Guerra Perez has opened her small home to no less than five families. There are 26 of us sheltered in my house. Some of them are out helping, but they're all back by the afternoon after they helped clean up the destruction with some neighbor's houses. Her home survived, but she doesn't have water or electricity. What they do have, she says, is each other. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Stephanie Scott. And a new storm front brought record warmth, dust storms and power outages, as well as reports of tornadoes across states from the west to the Great Plains. Temperatures topped 70 degrees in some places. Winds gusted to more than 100 miles an hour in Colorado and whipped up dust that took visibility to zero and knocked out power. A federal appeals court in New Orleans lifted a nationwide ban today on a federal COVID vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. The court left the ban in place for the 14 states that choose to block the mandate. It is blocked in 10 other states under a separate injunction. And meanwhile, Los Angeles schools have postponed a January deadline for students 12 and older to be vaccinated. The new deadline is next fall. And there are also signs that the Omicron variant is rapidly gaining ground. U.S. health officials said today the Delta variant still accounts for most cases but Omicron is catching up. In looking at early data on transmissibility of Omicron from other countries, we expect to see the proportion of Omicron cases here in the United States continue to grow in the coming weeks. Early data suggests that Omicron is more transmissible than Delta, with a doubling time of about two days. European Union officials predicted today that Omicron will become the dominant strain across the continent by mid-January. So far, it suggests that the new variant is more contagious, but to reach people on a lower floor. The cause was under investigation. And back in this country, the U.S. Senate gave final approval to the National Defense Authorization Act. It calls for $770 billion in spending, about 5% more than last year. Now, the bill includes a pay raise for troops, military aid to Ukraine, and also a new initiative against China's moves in the Pacific. With both China and Russia flexing their military power, and the growing danger of a further Russian invasion of Ukraine, it is critically important that we ensure that our nation is always prepared to defend itself and our vital national interests, whatever the threat. The measure also takes responsibility for prosecuting sexual assault and some other crimes out of the hands of military commanders. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pleaded guilty today to violating George Floyd's civil rights. Chauvin is already serving a 22-year prison term for a state murder conviction in Floyd's death last year. The maximum sentence on the federal civil rights charge is 25 years. A federal grand jury in Los Angeles has brought charges in an oil spill in Southern California in October. Amplify Energy Corporation and two subsidiaries face a misdemeanor charge of illegally discharging oil when an underwater pipeline ruptured off Long Beach, 
spilling about 25,000 gallons of crude. And New York City is getting its first female police commissioner and the first black head of the department since the 1990s. Kishanti Sewell was tapped today to lead the nation's largest police force. She is currently chief of detectives for Nassau County, New York. And also in New York, an appeals court there blasted Manhattan prosecutors today for filling out Harvey Weinstein's rape trial last year with what one judge deemed incredibly prejudicial testimony from women whose allegations were not a part of the criminal charges against him. Several judges on the panel appeared open to considering reversing Weinstein's conviction and ordering a new trial. The decision is not expected until January. Still to come on the news hour, how melting ice at the Earth's poles could cause a drastic rise in sea levels. A mountaineering group aims to be the first all-black team to climb Everest. Remembering the prolific author and activist, Bell Hooks, and much more. This is the PBS NewsHour from WEPA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. As the Omicron variant is spreading rapidly, top federal health officials warn that it could bring a massive wave of new infections to the U.S. as early as January. John Yang has our report. Judy, there are now confirmed cases of Omicron in at least 36 states. The CDC estimates the new variant represents about 3% of U.S. cases. Dr. Saad Omer is an epidemiologist and the director of the Yale Institute for Global Health. Dr. Omer, thanks so much for being with us. Given what we know about Omicron, or maybe more important, what we don't know, how concerned should people be about it, and how uh, should we expect Omicron to become the dominant strain? So here's what we know. Uh, we know that it is a highly infectious strain. We know that it evades uh, immunity, especially by two doses of uh, the vaccines we use. Uh, but we also know that it responds to three doses. Uh, so people have better protection with three doses of vaccine. What we don't know is how severe it will be. Uh, so there are two ways of looking at severity. Uh, you, you look at severity at the individual level. It seems there are very early signals that there may be uh, sort of at least the same or less severity per infection. But at the population level, if something is more infectious, uh, uh, if it's three times more infectious and half as severe, it will still produce more hospitalization. So I'm just sort of giving uh, you an example. So there that uh, from a public health perspective, public health authorities should absolutely be on alert. From individual perspectives, there, we have a lot of self-efficacy. We can, we are not helpless in the face of this uh, new variant. We can get vaccinated and boosted. We can take other precautions uh, in the interest of public health and personal protection, like testing before gatherings, including family gatherings, like wearing masks, like having good ventilation, etc. Given what you just said, that it may be more contagious but less severe, but that will still result in a lot of hospitalizations, how worried are you about what apparently the CDC talks about as the worst-case scenario, the triple whammy of Omicron, Delta, and seasonal flu? 
we may see a mixed picture. Influenza, they, this is a season where uh, people are mixing. So for the last couple of seasons, what, what has happened is, especially last season, there was a lot of social distancing that people had due to COVID. So therefore, you did get that bigger wave of influenza. So it is a possibility, but it's not a certainty. So there is some stochasticity. So there is uh, an element of chance still there. Uh, they, we are still learning about this variant. But also, again, as I said, we are not helpless bystanders in the face of this virus. You've talked and written a lot about misinformation, about the role of misinformation uh, in what's going on. What, what's your prescription uh, to fight that? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I, I think the prescription to fight that is, first of all, um, at the overall government level, there are a lot of information, you know, a lot of interventions governments can do, including the U.S. government. There is a really nice Surgeon General's report that actually lays out a roadmap for responding to misinformation and disinformation at various levels, from the federal to the state to the local government. So without going into the details of that report, that's a, that's a good recipe for that. At the individual level, what we can do is for our friends and family to make sure that they have access to the right information. So the second thing is uh, we, we shouldn't be argumentative. Um, the third thing is we should leave with facts and empathy rather than our instinct to correct the disinformation and by, by doing so, uh, repeating the disinformation. And then the last thing is to have a long engagement with our loved ones who have uh, misinformation or disinformation readily accessible rather than the expectation that in one righteous conversation we're going to convert people uh, to the cause of vaccination and, and, and actually uh, sort of remove them all to the, from the, all the exposure they have uh, to misinformation and disinformation about COVID and, and, and vaccines specifically. Dr. Saad Omer of the Yale Institute for Global Health, thank you very much. My pleasure. new research about the impact that climate change is having on both of Earth's colder regions and how that could affect people all over the world. William Brangham has the latest. That's right, Judy. A warming atmosphere is creating serious problems in the Arctic Circle and on the continent of Antarctica. The Arctic report card is out. High temperatures, shrinking sea ice, and extreme melting events are transforming that region. And at the opposite pole, in Antarctica, a key ice shelf that sits in front of the Thwaites Glacier could break up much sooner than expected, within five years. Joining me now is David Holland. He studies atmospheric and ocean sciences at New York University and is a leading researcher on the global initiative that is studying the Thwaites Glacier. David Holland, great to have you back on the news hour. I should explain why you look so dapper tonight. You are being elected a fellow in the American Geophysical Union at their conference in New Orleans. Congratulations. Uh, viewers might remember that the last time we saw you on the news hour, you were on the Thwaites Glacier itself doing research there. Can you help us understand what this most recent research showed? Uh, yes, we've been seeing for the last couple of decades uh, a large change in Antarctica, and in particular on this one glacier called Thwaites in West Antarctica. 
It's a very special place here because it's a marine base. It's actually largely in the ocean. And the ocean can, in theory, easily melt it. And so that's what actually now looks like it's coming to pass. Warm ocean waters have arrived at this place here, and they're melting it like crazy. As I was saying, it is the ice shelf that sits in front of Thwaites that is in particular jeopardy. Why do we care about the ice shelf as opposed to the glacier itself? Um, maybe one way to think of it is like you can think of a bottle of water with a cork, and the, all the water in the bottle is the water that represents all the potential sea level rise from Thwaites. And the cork is the ice shelf. I see. And so the, the breakup of that ice shelf itself would lead to Thwaites moving more quickly into the water. Exactly right. Effectively, there'd be nothing to hold it back. So if that ice shelf were to break up and, and Thwaites were to move into the ocean, what kind of impacts are we talking about? Um, it would be absolutely massive on the timescale of the last century for what we've seen. We would see a dramatic rise of several feet of sea level, and uh, it could be Thwaites itself, perhaps uh, two to three feet, but Thwaites is holding back its neighbors, and they too could fall apart raising sea level by an additional maybe six feet. So altogether, something of scale 10 feet. And if you try to wrap your head around that, we're talking around the entire Earth, the entire ocean. It's a massive amount of water. It's a rewriting of the global coastline in that sense. I mean, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people all over the Earth who are, who are living in those coastlines that are then facing inundation, flooding, and, and having to move, having to migrate. Absolutely. So surely in the past, if you look back in record, uh, sea level at the end of the last ice age uh, was down 300 feet or something of that scale. And it's since come up that. So it naturally changes on the planet by big numbers. This could be a relatively large change, but in short order and perhaps with our fingerprint on it. So I, I'd like to switch to the other polar region, to the Arctic Circle. And this recent Arctic report card that came out uh, referred to the disappearance of sea ice, rising temperatures there, extreme melting events on the ice sheets of Greenland. Um, what stood out to you in that report? Uh, I started my PhD actually working in the north on the Arctic. When I started in the early 90s, not a human being on Earth would have said the Arctic will ever change in our lifetime. And then within a decade, it began to fall apart. And it's been the largest change on the planet, perhaps, with half of the Arctic sea ice now gone. But what really struck me in the report were the ramifications of that change. For example, more shipping, and thus more noise in the ocean disturbing marine mammals, a change in the vegetation, a change in species. Now apparently uh, animals like beavers have moved into Alaska. So it's all a change and it's a, a disruption to what was there. It's very significant and it goes beyond just the melting of the ice. And, and broadly speaking, I know there's lots of influences in these regions, but we're talking about changes that are being driven both in Antarctica and in the Arctic because we burn oil and gas and coal and it's warming the atmosphere. Is that right? Uh, I would have been the first to, when I started my career, I found that really difficult to believe. And um, however, data and modeling outcomes now make it almost certain that that is the case. All right, David Holland of New York University, thank you. Very good to see you, and congratulations again on your honor today. Thank you so much, William. Have a great day.
group of mountaineers is aiming to make history and inspire others in a field not known for its diversity. Amnon of Oz reports. Most days for Dom Mullins start like this. He runs through the woods. Workouts in his makeshift gym. And post-exercise plunges into a freezing cold pond. It's a grueling regimen. All to prepare to climb a mountain synonymous with the ultimate challenge, Mount Everest. To climb a mountain like Everest, you need to have a lot of endurance. So that's what I'm doing. I'm building my endurance over time. Mullins, who's been climbing for more than a decade, is part of a group that aims to become the first all-black team to summit the world's highest mountain. Called Full Circle Everest, the team of 10 experienced mountaineers and climbers from the United States and Kenya is set to climb Everest next spring. Two unassuming men have climbed the 29,000-foot monarch of the Himalayas. Since Kenzig Norgay and Edmund Hillary first climbed Everest in 1953, around 6,000 have followed in their footsteps. But the team says only 10 of those have been black. As you were making your way up through the, through the years, did you see or know a lot of other black climbers? Actually, I knew none. <laughs> none? I knew none. So, the, the, in fact, the only black climbers that I've ever been with in the mountains are all on the Full Circle Everest mountaineering team. You know, lots of people would remark when they would see me in the mountains, like, wow, I've never seen a black per person climbing before. I've never seen a black person in the mountains. People would say that to you? Oh, absolutely. The numbers reflect Mullen's experience. Black people make up just 9% of all those who participate in outdoor recreation in the U.S. and just 1% of the climbing community. Mullins, an Iraq War veteran, was introduced to climbing through his work in veterans' organizations. He says it helped to fill a void left by the military. It was a part of my identity to be able to meet an obstacle, to be able to discipline myself enough to overcome it, and then achieve that thing gave me pride in myself. And so climbing became an, another vehicle in my life for that, that same process. When you think back to that very first climb you did, not knowing what it would take. Do you think you would have ever known back then that you'd be attempting to summit Everest these years later? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. By attempting to scale Mount Everest, he hopes to inspire others to connect with the outdoors and to highlight the access barriers black communities often face. There was absolutely no one that I knew in my community that even hiked or camped outside. If you don't have people who are who live within proximity to you that you can learn certain things from, then you don't learn those things. We're going to try to raise another twenty-five thousand through crowdfunding. The cost to too is a hurdle. Full Circle Everest has so far raised more than half a million dollars from sponsors and fundraising to make their summit attempt possible. Team lead Philip Henderson. Everest Everest don't happen unless you have sponsorship. Well, you're pretty wealthy. Make a lot of money. That's generally what happens. So for, for most people, especially in, in the, the communities that are underrepresented in the outdoor community, for most people, Everest is untouchable. Conditions on Everest have been under scrutiny in recent years. Record numbers of climbers raising concerns of overcrowding and 11 climbers dying over a two-week period in 2019. A recent study actually found, despite the crowds, the rate of deaths for Everest climbers has slightly decreased over the last two decades. 
Olympic site safety worry, Henderson, who attempted to summit Everest in 2012, is confident. I know that we can die on Everest and we know we will get at managing the risk as best we can, knowing that there are a lot of things that are out of your control, but um, the things that are within our, our control is what really makes the difference. Mullins, too, believes all the preparation will pay off in Nepal. I've had so many hurdles as you do when you're training for something like this, but it's meeting those hurdles and overcoming them that really allows you uh, a certain belief in your, your ability uh, for the, the main event. Reaching for new heights and forging a new path for others to follow. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Amna Nawaz.
maintain a sufficient self-defense capability. The act is ambiguous about the U.S. military responding to a Chinese invasion. China is funding but in an October CNN town hall, President Biden seemed to end that ambiguity. So are you saying that, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense if yes. China attacked? Yes, we have a commitment. But White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki immediately walked that back. Well, there has been no shift. The President was not announcing any change in our policy, nor has he made a decision to change our policy. So should the United States be more clear about whether or not it would defend Taiwan? Should the U.S. even come to Taiwan's defense? that, we get three views. Richard Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations and has served in a number of jobs in the State Department and National Security Council staff since the 1980s. Bonnie Glazer is the director of the Asia program of the German Marshall Fund. He's written extensively about U.S.-China relations. And Charles Glazer, not related to Bonnie Glazer, is professor of political science and director of the Institute for Security and Conflict at George Washington University. Welcome to all three of you. Thank you very much, Richard Haas. Let me start with you. Has U.S. policy of ambiguity about whether it would defend Taiwan from Chinese invasion run its course? Well, it's worked well for about four decades. The Chinese have not been able to dismiss the possibility we would, we would come to Taiwan's defense. Taiwan could not be assured we would, and that's kept everybody essentially on their heels a bit. The problem now is China has built up its military significantly. It's got real capabilities to, to overwhelm Taiwan and throw Solaris. There's real doubts in China's mind about America's willingness to come to Taiwan's aid. They look at what happened in Afghanistan. They looked earlier at what we did with the Kurds, the red line in, in Syria, how we didn't respond to Hong Kong, how we didn't respond to Crimea. So there's a lot of people in China who think there's a major uh, opportunity. So I would essentially say we need to be much more explicit about our willingness to come to Taiwan's defense. Our allies in the region, Japan, Australia, and others, expecting uh, that, want to want to see that, and I much prefer to deter China through certainty, through specificity, through clarity, rather than leaving this up to ambiguity. Bonnie Glazer, deter China through specificity? Well, Richard makes the assumption that strategic clarity would deter China, and I would argue that it would likely provoke China. I think that Beijing would view the U.S. stance uh, of strategic clarity as reneging on the understandings reached between our two countries when we normalized relations in 1979, which included breaking our mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, under which we had an ironclad commitment to Taiwan's defense. So I agree with Richard in that he has argued that the United States has to make significant investments in developing capabilities to defend Taiwan. But right now, we have questions about whether or not we can come to Taiwan's defense. So perhaps the most dangerous thing we would do uh, would be to say, yes, we will under all circumstances defend Taiwan, but then not have the capability to do so. We might tempt China to take that action today rather than postpone it till the future. Charles Glazer, should the U.S. defend Taiwan at all? I think it's actually time to reconsider that commitment, um, and I think we should actually break our commitment. The key issues have already been touched on in a certain way, which is that China is much more capable, its leadership is much more
Mr. Haas pick up on that point? Is Taiwan important enough to risk war? Let me disagree with both uh, both of my, my colleagues. Taiwan is important enough, and the, the, the entire American position in the critic, this critical part of the world, where a lot of 21st century history is going to be written, begins with our relationship with Japan. If the United States is not there for Taiwan, we not only allow a democracy to disappear, the principal producer of semiconductors to come under China's sway, China would gain strategically in terms of its ability to uh, use Taiwan as a forward base. But Japan and other countries would conclude they could no longer rely on us. And I think you'd either see appeasement of China or the nuclear, nuclear proliferation in places like Japan. So what we would do is take what has been the most stable, successful region of the world and turn it into anything but. Let me just disagree with Bonnie on an important point. There is nothing that is inconsistent with the one China policy, with our commitments to China, by the United States uh, articulating position of strategic clarity. She's right. It just can't be verbal. We should tell China. This is, we're not uh, supporting Taiwan's independence. This is not a true China policy. We continue to be committed to a good relationship with you if you, in turn, are, permit, are committed to the same. Bonnie Glazer, could the U.S. be more explicit and maintain one China policy? I believe, again, that we would provoke an attack on China if we did so. I think that the Chinese know uh, that the United States would come to Taiwan's defense. Uh, uh, Richard and others have argued that, in fact, uh, the Chinese could miscalculate. I think that all of PLA modernization over the last few decades has been based on the assumption that the United States is likely to intervene in a war in Taiwan. I believe that we should wait until the contingency arises and allow the president the flexibility to determine based on circumstances. Charles Glazer, why not wait? Why not maintain that flexibility, as Bonnie Glazer suggested? I think the ideal policy is a clearly conditional commitment, one that's clear that we will um, protect Taiwan if it's attacked by China, a, a provoked attack, um, but at the same time clear to Taiwan that we will not come to Taiwan's aid if Taiwan provokes the attack by declaring independence or moving too close to um, China's red lines. So I'd like to return to Richard's point about essentially that if we break the commitment to Taiwan, we're giving up in East Asia. And I think this greatly exaggerates the risk. Um, we can explain to Japan and other allies that Taiwan is very different than they are from the U.S. perspective and also most importantly from China's perspective. China does not think Japan is part of China. Second, we can do many things to make clear that our commitment to Japan and our other East Asian allies stands, including increasing our defense spending, increasing the tightness of the alliances, and so forth. Richard Haas, could the U.S. explain the difference between Japan and Taiwan? I think we're kidding ourselves. If China is allowed to take Taiwan and the United States does not respond, Japan, Australia, India, and every other country in that part of the world, including South Korea, will, will recalibrate dependence on the United States, it gives China tremendous geographic and strategic advantages to pressure uh, its neighbors. Bonnie Glazer, I wonder if I could just in the last few minutes we have left zoom out a little bit. Richard Haas mentioned Afghanistan, uh, the, the withdrawal from there. Uh, we have also seen a desire from multiple administrations to reduce the U.S. footprint in the Middle East. There is a perception around the world that the U.S. is not committed as it once was. Uh, how do you believe that affects the Taiwan question? I don't believe that the Chinese draw the conclusion from the U.S. withdrawal of, from Afghanistan uh, that the United States would not come to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is extremely different 
Kong from Afghanistan as if Hong Kong, Hong Kong was already part of China, having been returned to China in 1997. So I think the United States has to, uh, to make statements and actions that will ensure that China doesn't draw the wrong conclusion and see the U.S. as weak. But we have many different ways of doing that and that are fall short of a position of strategic clarity. So in other words, the U.S. government has to walk a very fine line. Charles Glazer, can the U.S. thread that needle? I'm not confident that even if we thread it as well as we can, that we can avoid war over the, over the next few decades. We could get into a really large war with China over Taiwan, and it could be an extremely costly war. And hopefully if we maintain our current policy, deterrence will work. Uh, but it may not work. There are a variety of reasons it could fail, no matter how well we manage that policy. So I would come to the hard conclusion that we should break the commitment. We'll have to leave it there. Charles Glazer, Bonnie Glazer, Richard Haas, Thank you all very much. The influential critic, author, and feminist Bell Hooks died today at the age of 69. She was at home, surrounded by friends and family. Amna is back with a look at her work and her legacy. Born Gloria Jean Watkins, Bell Hooks grew up in segregated Kentucky in the 1950s and 60s. The daughter of a janitor and a maid, Hooks left home to attend Stanford University, where she earned an English degree. She went on to earn a Ph.D., and then authored more than 30 works under her pen name, which was taken from her great-grandmother. Her prolific writing spanned poetry, essays, and children's books, examining the intersection of race, politics, and gender, and making her one of the most influential black feminist scholars of the last half century. In 2004, Hooks returned to Kentucky to teach at Berea College and later founded the Bell Hooks Institute there. Here to talk more about her life and its impact is Imani Perry. She's the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Professor Perry, welcome to the News Hour. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for having me. You reacted to the passing of Bell Hooks on Twitter by sharing this thought. You wrote, for exactly 30 years, she was not only an intellectual influence, but a presence in my life. Professor Perry, tell us about the impact that Bell Hooks had on you. Well, I, I met her when I was 19 years old. I was an intern at South End Press, where she published um, much of her work. And she was a teacher to her core, even though I didn't have her in the classroom. Um, she brought ideas alive. She is a person who bridged the space between you know, high critical theory, European scholars and intellectuals, Marxist thinkers, and everyday life. And she wrote and spoke in a way to make all of that theory applicable to our daily lives. And also, she wanted it to bear upon the way we thought of each other ethically, our relationships, our personal stories. So she, so she was both an intellectual and she was also a kind of... Um, I don't know, a curate, like a, a, a person who tended to souls as an educator. And so to be brought under her wing as a, as a teenager was incredibly influential. It allowed me to imagine how to live a life of the mind, but also how to pursue, you know, right relation to other human beings in my midst. As you mentioned, she was born, Gloria Jean Watkins. She took the pen yeah. name 
Bell Hooks, which was her great-grandmother's name. What do we know about why she took that name and why all lowercase when she used it? Yeah, I mean, she it was consistent with leftist organizers of the era to think of one the individual in the lowercase, that one spoke in the collective, right? So her name was both an homage to her great-grandmother and the women who came before, but also with a kind of humility to choose the lowercase. Um, uh, and, you know, she was very much, I mean, she traveled the world. She had a massive influence. She was a southern country woman to her core. Um, and and she she never lost touch with that, you know. it was And so there was a kind of intimacy with that identity that she held on to um, through, through her, her pen name, as it were. But I always called her Gloria. And she mentioned those southern roots, growing up at the intersection of racism and sexism. Um, she actually spoke about it in the 2016 talk at St. Norbert College in Wisconsin. Take a listen to what she said. I think that many of us as females find sexism so normalized, whereas people of color, black, brown, whatever, when we hear a racist joke or, or racism spoken not as a joke, we really feel assaulted our sensibilities, but sexism is such a woven into the fabric of our daily lives that I think it's harder for people to, to resist. Professor Perry, how did that lived experience show up in her work? Well, she, you know, she told a lot of stories from her own life. You know, she in many ways was an open book. She allowed herself to be vulnerable. Um, and she contemplated, like, the, the way that she engaged with people, and she was she was outspoken, and she could be really challenging, was to open that up, that feel, those, to explore those questions of internalized sexism, internalized classism, how do we love each other? I mean, those, so that kind of exploration um, was, I mean, that was consistent with who she was. And for me, it allowed me to think, all of the, the sort of academic things I was pursuing, they boiled down at a, to the very core about how we are going to live and how we're going to coexist on this planet. Um, that, I mean, that's who she was. It has been four decades since her first full-length book, Ain't I a Woman, was published. And we have to note that a lot of the ideas she brought up back then about black women and feminism and white feminism and the intersection of race and sex and all of these things, we're still talking about those things and grappling with them today. What do you think the oh, legacy yeah. of those ideas that she raised four decades ago is today? Well, I, th I think her legacy is enormous. And part of you know this incredible body of work that she, that she created, the legacy that's found is there's so many young people, the first time they start to think seriously about class, about sexuality, about gender, about identity, about vulnerability, about spirituality, is through her work. You know, her work has never gone out of press. That ain't I a woman you can still purchase, right? And so the legacy is actually in all of us who have been influenced by her work, not just in academia, in every sector of the society, in organizing, in nonprofit worlds, in corporate America. And so, I, I mean, it really has, she has shaped several generations of thinkers uh, and of, of people who are members of communities. And so I hope that at this moment, it becomes a, a time for us to reflect on how much she helped us think, how much she helped us grow, right, and how she pushed the world closer to justice. An incredible life and an enormous loss. Professor Imani Perry, uh, Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Thank you so much for joining us.
abortion clinics are seeing an influx of patients from Texas seeking access to abortion. And a case before the Supreme Court could complicate matters further. You can read more at pbs.org slash news hour. And the Washington National Cathedral today marks a somber milestone. The cathedral's funeral bells tolled 800 times this evening to commemorate the 800,000 Americans who have lost their lives to COVID-19. for tonight. I'm Judy Woodruff. Join us online and again here tomorrow evening for all of us at the PBS NewsHour. Thank you. Please stay safe and we'll see you soon. Major funding for the PBS NewsHour has been provided by... For 25 years, Consumer Cellular's goal has been to provide wireless service that helps